Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we will continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We are in chapter 10, and what I want to do this evening is go back into verses 1 to 6. Yesterday, Chris Cyber joined me, and we had a great discussion, and I don't know if we really got out of a discussion of meekness. We certainly intended to get into verses 3 to 6, but we really didn't. So I want to reread verses 1 to 6 and pick up with our reflection in verse 3, and then just kind of see where our, our reflection takes us. So if you have your Bibles out, if you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. Now I myself, Paul, urge you through the gentleness and clemency of Christ— I, who am humble when face to face with you, but brave towards you when absent. I beg you that, when present, I may not have to be brave with that confidence with which I intend to act boldly against some who consider us as acting according to the flesh. For although we are in the flesh, we do not battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our battle are not of the flesh, but are enormously powerful, capable of destroying fortresses. We destroy arguments and every pretension raising itself against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. And we are ready to punish every disobedience once your obedience is complete. All right, off the top, before I get into anything else, I think we should give a nod to the Old Testament background to Paul's imagery of Father Stegman, the figure that I have been drawing from off and on has a beautiful topical essay here, and he talks about the Old Testament background to Paul's war imagery, and he says this, Paul's use of battle imagery draws on the Old Testament. Listen to these phrases here. The prophet Isaiah portrays God as putting on justice as his breastplate, salvation as the helmet on his head, garments of vengeance, and a mantle of zeal. Father Stegman continues, Thus armed, God goes forth as redeemer of those who turn from sin and battle their enemies. Paul adapts this imagery in exhorting Christians to ward off any forces that draw them away from following Christ. He encourages his communities to put on the armor of light, that armor of light which is the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet that is hope for salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. I mean, the language of the Old Testament is everywhere. And St. Paul wants us to understand that we are in a battle. We are in a great spiritual battle, and that battle is a battle for our very souls. And we have to start taking this seriously. I mentioned Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12 yesterday, those verses that speak specifically to this call we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because, well, what does Peter say? Satan is prowling like a roaring lion. Satan is real, my friends, in spite of what some people want to say out there. He's some symbolic construct. Jesus never said, be gone, symbolic construct. He said, be gone, Satan. Let's not be foolish. 
Let's not be foolish. Jesus, when he was here on earth, exercised demons, real demons. Let's not play games. One of the great tools that Satan uses is to get us to think that he doesn't exist. Because if he doesn't exist, well, then we can do whatever we want to do with no consequence. Brothers and sisters, Satan is real. And there is a battle. There is a war. A line has been drawn. And that line was drawn by the very crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As St. Ignatius of Loyola would remind us, as we've already talked about, there are two camps. And what camp do you belong in? The camp of the adversary or the camp of Christ. So, picking up with a reflection, verse 3, Paul acknowledges that he is in the flesh. That is, he shares like everyone else in the human condition. However, he insists what, my friends? He does not battle according to the flesh, in ways deprived of God's power. Rather, as Paul explains, his weapons are enormously powerful, capable of destroying fortresses. I love that. You know, the enormously powerful can also be translated as powerful because of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are only powerful if it is God who is working in and through us. So Paul's use of battle imagery serves to highlight what? God's power. Now, it might seem surprising that the apostle speaks about battles and weapons immediately after invoking our Lord's gentleness and forbearance as we spoke to it yesterday. But with this juxtaposition, Paul captures the paradox of how God's power is made known, that above all, God's power has been revealed in our Lord's death on the cross. Through this climactic expression of Jesus' humble, self-giving love, the powers of sin and death were defeated. Is there greater power in the cross? What St. Paul wants us to see is that God's power continues to be manifested in earthen vessels, like Paul, through the preaching of the gospel. Thus, the weapons of righteousness that he talked about back in chapter 6, verse 7, which he now describes himself as wielding, are in actuality the loving, self-giving way of life that eloquently proclaims the good news concerning what God has done through Christ. Again, this is what Chris and I were talking about yesterday. And those weapons do include the authority to refute what is contrary to the gospel. Paul continues the battle metaphor as he sets forth the threefold progression of siege warfare. The first stage of siege warfare is to destroy the opponent's bulwarks, to destroy the opponent's uh, fortifications. Thus, as a soldier in God's army, what does Paul say? Paul attacks and destroys arguments and every pretension raising itself against the knowledge of God. I mean, how important is this for us to sit with today, 2017, where our Christian faith is being attacked from the front, from the back, from this side, from that side? Have we put on the mantle of righteousness? Have we increased in our knowledge of God that we might destroy those arguments and every pretension raising itself against the truth of God? 
recall what we talked about in chapters 4 and 6, that the knowledge of God refers to the gospel of God, to what God has revealed through his life, death, and resurrection. My friends, Paul's point here is very similar to the one he made in his opening chapter of his first epistle. Go back with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Flip your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it was the will of God through the foolishness of the proclamation to save those who have faith. You see, my friends, the true gospel proclaimed by Christians through word and deed reveals the emptiness of any theology that does not take full account of the power of the cross. What else did Paul say? I preach to you Christ. Yes, I preach to you Christ crucified. That's the stumbling block, right? The gospel makes manifest the harmful consequences of setting one's mind on the things of the flesh. What else does it do? It also deflates all forms of arrogance, does it not? This was a point I think we made at the close of our program yesterday evening in relationship to meekness, the virtue of meekness. When we embody the gospel message, especially to that virtue of meekness, we are challenging our brothers and sisters to become what? More meek, right? It has a way, I think, of deflating arrogance. That is the power of humility. That is the power of, of meekness. Now, the second stage of siege warfare is to take captives. Hence, Paul states in verse 5 that he takes every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Earlier in the letter, he asserted that what? The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Now, this remark helps us interpret Paul's imagery here. He envisions his work of proclaiming the gospel, as Father Stegman notes here, and I love this, as a type of rescue operation. And in doing so, he adopts the notion of taking captives. What a beautiful image that is turning it into something positive for those so captured. That is to say, my friends, he seeks to bring his hearers into the light of the knowledge of the glory of God on the face of Christ. So while Paul refers here to thoughts, in essence, my friends, at least as it appears, his real concern is for the persons who hold them. His assumed logic is that people must correctly understand the gospel if they are to live by it. I mean, we are created in the image and likeness of God, and we are wired for God. But if we don't understand the gospel and its values, then what are we moving towards? We can do good things and good acts, but in the end, one studies so as to better live, right? So then the question can be asked, you know, what then does Paul mean by taking captives in obedience to Christ? I think the answer can be found in a better rendering of that phrase, obedience to Christ, and that rendering is Christ-like obedience. Paul desires to inculcate this attitude of total commitment of mind and will to God 
after the manner of our Lord's own yes, Jesus's yes to God. With reference to the Corinthians, we have seen that he seeks their obedience to God in reaffirming their love for the wrongdoer. And of course, as we have been talking about so much recently, in giving generously to the collection. He now seeks their obedience to God and their rejection of the intruding missionaries. And as a slave of God on behalf of the Corinthians, Paul knows the paradox that captivity to God leads to very real freedom, very real liberty. And it is only in submitting ourselves to the life-giving way of God that we begin to find true freedom, true freedom from selfishness and, and all of those concupiscent, sinful desires. Now, what about this third and last stage of siege warfare? The third stage of siege warfare deals with the fomenters of rebellion. Thus, Paul declares in verse 6 that he stands ready to punish every disobedience once your obedience is complete. As we have just observed, he wants the community to express its obedience by rejecting those who oppose Christ and their misunderstanding of the gospel. This is his primary objective. When Paul is satisfied that at least the majority of the Corinthians have fully declared their obedience to God, he will then turn his attention to those within the community who are following the intruding missionaries. And what kind of punishment does Paul have in mind here? Well, he, he does not say. Although, if you were to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 to 5, we might find a clue, because there he calls for the excommunication of a man living in grave sin, with the hope that the man is literally shocked into repentance so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. In any event, the apostle makes clear that he intends to act boldly if he is forced to. I mean, the warfare imagery that St. Paul lays out here is rich, and it is rhetorically powerful. It can almost strike us as jarring, especially given the prevalence of violence and war in our world today. I mean, indeed, we are only too aware of the tendency, seen more and more, to appeal to religion to justify the use of violence against others. And in that context, we ask the question, really, I mean, how can we interpret verses 3 to 6 in a life-giving manner? Well, we have to understand, my friends, that first it is essential to observe that Paul's primary point is to make manifest the power of God to overcome all that opposes the coming of the kingdom of God. Second, it is important to keep in mind that he is talking here about spiritual, and we could also say intellectual warfare against Satan and mistaken ideas about God. He is not speaking about warfare against human beings per se. And as I already opened up with, yeah, <laughs> the spiritual life does involve engaging in battle. Engaging in battle against forces that seek to draw us away from the living gospel. And so it is right that St. Paul draws from all of those beautiful Old Testament images of warfare to capture what's going on here. 
that equipped with the armor of God, we can be confident of victory because Christ himself has already defeated the power of Satan. What does Mark tell us in chapter 3, verse 27? We know who wins. Christ wins. So we have to battle against the legions of the adversary. And remember that the battle starts within, right? If we are going to battle right, then we must first take care of our interior life. We must first get our life straight. We can't even begin to use the the weapons at, at our disposal if we are not first right. And so we have to be right with God that we might then exist for other as God rightfully calls us to exist for other in the battle. And what does St. Paul suggest here? We exist for other, we do so boldly, boldly. Pastors, teachers, administrators, parents, and all leaders would do well to reflect on whether their own comportment and leadership style reflects our Lord's leadership style, which again starts with gentleness and that clement way of exercising authority. But out from that, as verses 2 to 6 make clear, at times it is necessary to employ a sterner pastoral attitude. When confronted with arrogance, when confronted with disobedience, those in authority have to act with sufficient boldness to correct and, if necessary, discipline the persons in question. And this just isn't St. Paul. St. Paul is but an echo chamber of our Lord himself. Lastly, before we consider a few more verses, we should be attentive to something else here. The importance of theology. The importance of theology. Paul's concern for arguments, Paul's concern for thoughts, reveals the critical importance in the Christian life of what a person thinks, right? How a person argues. We need to have a correct understanding of who God is. We need to have a correct understanding of what it means to say we are created in God's image and likeness, that we are the imago dei. We need to have a correct understanding of what Christian discipleship entails. And for the apostle, for St. Paul, Theology is not just an academic exercise. Its ultimate purpose is to transform lives. St. Paul gets into this in the next chapter. We will not go too deep into this now. But I do think it's important to give a nod to this right now because he does speak of arguments. He does speak of theology. You know, we have defined theology as what? Faith-seeking understanding. That's the more classical understanding of theology, faith-seeking understanding. St. Thomas Aquinas also says, as it's faith-seeking understanding, it is that discipline that helps us to better what? Argue. Not in that contemporary sense of, you know, point-counterpoint, punch-counterpunch, where anger is manifested anywhere and everywhere. No but argue for the sake of truth, debate for truth. Theology equips us with the tools to be able to argue, to be able to debate for the sake of truth.
Amen? Amen. All right. We can go ahead and get a reflection on verses 7 to 11 started. So if you want to turn back to your Bibles, chapter 10, verses 7 to 11. Look at what confronts you. Whoever is confident of belonging to Christ should consider that as he belongs to Christ, so do we. And if I should boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for tearing you down, I shall not be put to shame. May I not seem as one frightening you through letters. For someone will say his letters are severe and forceful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Such a person must understand that what we are in word through letters when absent, that we also are in action when present. Okay, so in these series of verses, Paul is challenging the Corinthians to consider that their very existence as a Christian community attests to the authority given to him by Christ, that they are a demonstration of the existence of Christ. And he explains that his authority is for building up, not tearing down. And of course, he then responds to criticism about the severity of his letters and the unimpressive way he presents himself in person. Against his critics, the intruding missionaries, and some in the community, Paul insists that his character and, again, comportment are consistent with one another. In this opening verse, he makes an impassioned appeal. Look at what confronts you. What does he want the Corinthians to consider? Well, first he wants them to appreciate that he belongs to Christ. And to say he belongs to Christ in the Greek has a more specific connotation than simply being a member of the Christian community. Paul uses it as a synonym for being an apostle or minister of Christ. So in the background is the intruding missionary's claim of being confident of belonging to Christ. That is, their claim that Christ has commissioned them to be missionaries for him. Now, for the time being and for argument's sake, Paul grants their self-assessment. Indeed, as verse 8 suggests, the very existence of the church in Corinth attests to his apostleship. Therefore, if the Corinthians look at what is right before their eyes, that is, if they consider how God has worked among them through their founding apostle, they should readily recognize that if anyone has the claim to belong to Christ, it is Paul. Paul is not being some sophisticated, pompous, arrogant apostle. He is a vessel, my friends. Now, in verse 8, Paul broaches the issue of the authority that the Lord gave to him for building the community up. Observe his unease in talking about himself, even if I should boast a little too much. As it stands, for Paul, by speaking of the authority given to him by God through Christ for building up the Corinthians, Paul reminds them that it was he who laid the foundation of God's building when he came to Corinth proclaiming the gospel. Now, Paul's building up the community refers to all the labor he has since expended to promote their well-being. And what drives this building up but love itself? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 spoke to this love that drives his building up and that he is confident that he shall not be put to shame when he appears before the judgment seat of Christ. 
You know, when we work for the building up of the kingdom of God, and if love drives us, we have nothing to worry about. And if we ever come off as defending ourselves, we always have the love that motivates us as our backdrop. If our motives are pure, if our intentions are pure, the power of God, as we were just speaking to it, speaking through us, through us, will make clear for those willing to hear what we are all about. You know, I have received on a number of different occasions, people come to me and say, Joe, I hate defending myself. <laughs> I hate defending myself. And the question that I ask them is, are you defending yourself or are you defending the truth that you bear witness to? If what motivates you is a defense of yourself and only yourself, that you are the end in itself, well, that's a problem. But if you are defending the truth you bear witness to, and if you are humble enough to see that you are an earthen vessel that is to build up the kingdom of God, you're okay. Continue to defend the truth that you bore witness to. And if they don't come to understand what you are saying, that's not on you. To the person you are speaking to, we pray for the grace that they might have an open heart. And if that person doesn't come to understand, you can't control that. Don't spin your wills over that. Move on. Move on. I know we want every person we come into contact with to come to know Jesus Christ as we desire to know Jesus Christ. But the best we can do is bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ in word and deed. And hopefully we plant the seeds that need to be planted. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.